You're listening to the Optimal Performance Podcast. The OPP is brought to you by Natural Stacks, makers of 100% natural and open source supplements designed to help you live optimal. For more information on how to build optimal mental and physical performance into your life, go to naturalstacks.com. Oh, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Optimal Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Sean McCormick. You can find me at seanmccormick.com, or you can go check out my newly buffed up YouTube channel just by my name, Sean McCormick. I am a performance coach, a life coach, a podcast host, bringing you just the best possible, best, best, best possible content for you to live an optimal life. And for many of us, we're dealing with injuries that are decades old, you know, back pains or hip injuries or knee injuries. And what can we do? What can we possibly do before we go under the knife to regenerate our bodies? And so we dive very deeply in this episode with Dr. Payson Flattery, who is the head doctor and founder of Bend Regenerative Medicine. He's been at the cutting edge of regenerative medicine for over 20 years, started with dextrose and... Uh, evolved. And we talk a lot about the progression of regenerative medicine and, and, and injections that to help regenerate body parts. I mean, that's really what we're talking about. You know, kind of started in the 1980s with, uh, with dextrose injections, and then that kind of got moved into uh, platelet-rich plasma injections, and then from there to um, stem cells and exosomes. We talk about all of this stuff. You know, he talks about how exosomes are the new breakthrough treatment um, and the results that he sees in his clinic are astounding. You know, I'm sure that you've heard of people getting full body stem cell treatments. You know, uh, it's becoming more and more commonplace. And so we talk a little bit about whether or not you should be sitting down and laying down and getting, you know, jacked up with stem cells in your entire body. I get his thoughts on that. Uh, We talk about the sources of stem cells and exosomes, where he gets his exosomes from. Um, They're prenatal stem cells. We talk about the process of, of, analyzing those stem cells from the donors. Um, and I'll tell you, the answer that he tells me is really relieving because I had I had some fears around where where this stuff comes from, um, this where stem cells that are going into my body, where, where are they from? Uh, we talk a lot about how he thinks about regenerative medicine versus s- sort of standard Western surgical procedures and it is a fascinating episode. If you if you have something or if you have a loved one that is dealing with major pain from some sort of injury, it, it's 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 becoming more commonplace for these regenerative medicine practices. And I think it's a really good thing because um, if you can avoid you know massive surgery by by getting some PRP injected um, consciously and effectively, man oh man, that's that's where that's what it's all about. Um, as always, the show notes have all the details that you, that from this episode, um, Dr. Payson is a very interesting guy. He's a very active guy and has been basically experimenting on himself for a long time, you know, to uh, recover from rotator cuff surgeries. And this kind of answers a ton of questions around what this stuff is, how it's used, how it works, what's the future of it. You know, he predicts that exosomes may be used for cancer treatments in the future because the of the very of how small they are, how effective they are, and how adaptable they are to treat injury. Um, so yeah, 
as always, if you guys would please, and I'll just say this in a different way because I say it every week, but um, I really do appreciate five-star reviews. It takes one minute. And also, because I think that this episode could be so fundamentally impactful for so many different people, you know, it's really easy to share these episodes now. Just click on iTunes and the three buttons in the bottom right-hand corner and just share it. Share it to Facebook. Share it with your friends. Um, this is cutting-edge stuff that I am really, really stoked to bring to you, and it's my pleasure. This was a really fascinating conversation, and I hope that you get as much out of it as I did. Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, Dr. Payson Flattery. You're listening to the Optimal Performance Podcast, and I'm your host, Sean McCormick. It's the OPP. I'm a performance coach, a wellness entrepreneur, a blogger, a speaker, a biohacker, and it's my privilege to bring to you the leading experts in the field of performance. So let's dig right in. And we're here with Dr. Payson Flattery of the Center for Integrative Medicine and Bend Regenerative Medicine. Dr. Payson, welcome to the Optimal Performance Podcast. Thanks, Sean. Good to be here. I'd like to start, I'd like to know what what you progressive, innovative um, doctors, practitioners, experts eat in the morning. So if you would please, would you tell everybody what time it is where you're at and what you've put all of the things, all the things that you've put in your body today? Right, it's uh, 8.45 in the morning. Uh, I woke up at 5. I had a bulletproof coffee with ghee and coconut oil. And then I worked out, uh, ran four miles, then I Basically, I actually studied a little bit about what I'm going to talk about today and uh, had a smoothie. My smoothie consisted of berries, chia seeds, a little bit of kefir, um, celery, carrot, greens, half an avocado, a little MCT, and that was, that was it. Nice. Excellent. I'm really excited to get into this conversation, not only because I think that the work that you do is fascinating, and I know that our listeners will too as well, um, but I would love to start at the beginning. How is it that you found yourself as a practitioner of integrative medicine? How did you find your way into this realm? Um, just sort of tell us your sort of origin story. Okay. So I initially became a chiropractor. Uh, I finished uh, in the late mid, mid to late 90s, and then I decided I wanted to go back to school. One of the things I found with chiropractic is that I didn't feel like I was really helping people get over their pain. And so I began to uh, look, look to other areas. And during that time, I got introduced to prolotherapy. It actually started initially with learning how to do trigger point injections while I was in naturopathic medical school. And, uh, and then I was mentored by someone by the name of Rick Marinelli, uh, who's uh, an old-time prolotherapist. He's no longer with us. Uh, but he said, Payson, trigger points are great, but if you really want to get to the root of pain, you have to come to the next workshop, which is on prolotherapy. And this was in 2000, end of 2000. And uh, while we were in the audience, kind of listening to Rick speak, he said, you know, how many of you have had a lot of chiropractic and never seem to get better? You know, never get long-term relief with this. And of course, I raised my hand because when I started school, I found that I needed to be adjusted once in a great while. I was an outdoor athlete, I was in good shape, 
And as I moved through my education and we practiced adjusting one another, I started to develop more pain and more dependence on chiropractic. What I didn't realize was that what was happening is, as I was developing ligamentous laxity, secondary to all the high velocity, low amplitude adjusting that was going on. And so it kind of discouraged me. And uh, so I went back to school uh, in 2000, started studying with Rick, uh, very quickly uh, picked it up, having a, a real good, strong foundation in orthopedics and uh, began teaching alongside him. And we basically you know, taught for the course of about 15 years. I still teach intermittently. And uh, so really the roots for me began in, in essentially in, in prolotherapy. And I think that we, we as regenerative medicine docs, sometimes, especially the newer generation, don't realize that that's, that's where all this began. And it really began about 60 years ago. Can, um, can you define prolotherapy for us and then talk about the origins? Yeah. So proliferative therapy or prolotherapy, you know, we are, when we're doing regenerative medicine, essentially we're, we're practicing proliferative therapy. But when we think about proliferative therapy or prolotherapy, we're thinking about the use of other stu substances, primarily dextrose. And really it all began, however, with pumice. So physicians started injecting pumice into SI joints to scar them down and, and stabilize these joints because they would become hypermobile. From there, basically, it was realized that dextrose had a much better, cleaner uh, regenerative capacity. It would reorganize fibers. It would lay them down in the right in, in the right orientation, and it would also shorten and strengthen those fibers. And as we, as as physicians know, most pain is really related to instability within joints, instability, you know, ligamentous laxity. That's why we're generally always taught well. In physical therapy, you need to loosen up your hips, strengthen your core, right? It's all about stabilizing joints. Well, these types of therapies, especially the, you know, the first generation of therapy, prolotherapy, uh, really is involved with tightening up those ligaments and restoring normal biomechanics. Mm. Um, and kind of coming back to that whole piece of, well, why do you have pain in a joint complex? You, know, you keep going back to the chiropractor, you keep going back to the massage therapist. Well, that is very palliative, right? Because the, the, the problem is within the joint complex. And so this muscle splinting that we're seeing, this pain, this dysfunction, the lack of mobility within joints is partly related to the, something called Hilton's Law, where you have these nerves that essentially innervate the joint and those nerves then uh, basically branch off and then they, they innervate the overlying structures. So when you have a joint problem, our body's protective mechanism is to tighten that area down. So from there, essentially, physicians started thinking about, okay, what else can we do to have a better regenerative effect? And so as a group, we started injecting testosterone. We started injecting growth hormone, mixing that with dextrose. And then someone had the, the idea, well, let's use platelets. Platelets have been used basically in, in other areas of medicine and uh, in the basically in dentistry, uh, platelets were used for closing up, uh, basically you know, cardiothoracic surgeries. And, uh, so started bringing in PRP and, and what's cool about PRP is that all we're really doing is we're mimicking what the body does naturally. So when you injure yourself, your blood vessels dilate or they essentially break and platelets leave that blood vessel and they hit the tissue, they degranulate and they activate local stem cells. They really are what initiate a healing cascade. 
PRP obviously has its limitations because it, it basically, you have to have healthy stem cells around, uh, you have to, uh, you know, it's, it's better. Sometimes it creates a very strong pro-inflammatory environment that's not as healthy for the inside of a joint. Uh, science has shown that when we inject PRP, we want to inject pure PRP or acellular PRP into joints, PRP that is devoid of white blood cells, red blood cells, and, uh, and then save those, you know, save a little bit of red blood cell and a little bit of white blood cell for those injections outside the joint. Uh, so for about over the last 15 years or about 15 years ago, I started utilizing PRP in my practice. Um, and I would do it in combination with dextrose and usually mix the two together just because dextrose has all these other qualities of downregulating inflammation in the nervous system. Uh, there's newer research now showing that actually dextrose regenerates cartilage. We don't really have that research on PRP at this point. And dextrose is inexpensive. And so uh, Dr. Reeves did a study with a group down in Argentina. It was a surgical study, a human study, where they injected dextrose into joints and showed that it actually regenerated cartilage. Where do they find, where do they get the dextrose? Dextrose is, so one of the drawbacks about dextrose that's commercially available is it is genetically modified. But dextrose just comes from pharmaceutical companies. Got so it. basically, dextrose is utilized in medicine uh, for, you know, giving IVs to give people carbohydrate, essentially. Got it. So I, I want to highlight a couple of things because I want to paint people a picture here that the application of PRP, platelet-rich plasma, um, the, the, I can speak to you just really briefly so that people can kind of understand, you know, you, you, you pull out how many cc's of blood when you do a uh, PRP? It depends on the, the, the specific complaint, but in my clinic, we use high volume PRP. So we have a lab where we process our PRP here. Uh, a lot of clinics utilize kits and those kits usually are 30 cc's, 60 cc's, occasionally 120 cc kits. Uh, in my practice, we generally, you know, we'll draw up to 240 cc's. Uh, that is then spun down in, in a centrifuge, uh, and then based on density, you're taking specific layers of that. Um, and then, so you can essentially kind of fine tune what you want. Do you want, you know, just platelets? Do you want white blood cells with that, et cetera? It's so fascinating because I've seen you do the, I've seen you work and, and, and with one hand you have an ultrasound where you're looking into, <laughs> into the tissue, looking at the tendons, looking at the soft tissue around. And then with the other hand, like, um, some sort of like uh, symphony conductor, uh, injecting delicately with the needle into the tissues itself. And, you know, uh, it's fascinating to me because that you have that takes a little practice, right? You have to do that a lot of times to get good at that, right? You do. I've been doing ultrasound for twelve years, and I still feel like I have a ton to learn. Yeah. What, what's really cool about ultrasound, you know, if, from a regenerative perspective, we just we never really knew what we were doing, right? And when ultrasound came onto the scene, we could actually see tissues change. So you know, you'd see partial tears in the rotator cuff. Based on the initial exam, you do treatment, and then you go back and you look at that tissue four, six, eight months later, and the tissue changes. Uh, so that's kind of when people started really getting excited and really realizing, okay, what we're doing, you know, is valid. Uh, and and I think the the field really kind of began to take off when we could actually examine tissues in in that light. I eventually I want to get to the the popularity of of prp treatments i mean ev everybody and their cousin is doing 
stem cells and PRP and facials and whole body. You know, the, the, the people are hip to that. So I do want to go there. But before we go into um, how all of this stuff has, has continued to grow, I want to I wanna just point out one thing. That I know, I mean, I know you to be a very, a very um, active outdoor person, um, climbing, heli skiing. I mean, I'm sure that you kayak, um, living in Bend, Oregon, which is like the outdoor mecca of the world. There's so much cool things to do in the Pacific Northwest. Um, throughout this process of your own education into these therapies, it sounds like you were experimenting on yourself or, and, and with your other um, students or, or adepts of this, of this technique. H- have you been doing all of this this entire time too? Yes. Yeah. So really when I started, the, the reason I got into this field is because I actually, part of, part of learning how to do this is you, you practice on one another. Um, and, uh, at least back, back, you know, 20 years ago, we would practice on one another. That doesn't happen as much in, in now. Uh, and so, uh, Essentially, I got treated by Rick, Dr. Marinelli, early on and had amazing results. You know, I had neck pain. I had pain in my hand and uh, that, he treated me a couple times and my pain completely went away. And this was pain that I had been struggling with for, for quite a long time, many, many years. So, yeah. And, and as time has gone on, yes, I tend to inject myself periodically areas that I can reach. I'll inject on my own. Um, I watched all of my friends there, you know, they started having shoulder problems in their forties and, uh, early fifties and my shoulder started to hurt. So I knew that in, in, in short time I could tear a rotator cuff or something. So looked at my cuffs under ultrasound and basically drew PRP, uh, had my staff process it and injected my rotator cuffs. And now my cuffs feel great. Um, and I'll tell you a little bit more, you know, as we get further along, some of the other things I've done with exosomes and, and, and stem cells as well. Are you, are you a switch hitter? Can you go right, right, right arm or can you go right hand, left hand with the injections? Uh, I wouldn't say I'm very effective with my left hand. Uh, <laughs> but, uh I can do it. Sounds like you tried it at least on yourself, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I just think, I just think it's fascinating. And I think it's part of, it's part of the story of, you know, for, for people who are skeptical, they're like, okay, we get it. Obviously, it's popular, but are these people doing this to themselves? Are they are they um, users of these of these therapies? So, so back when you were working with other people and learning how to do these, was it was it mostly dextrose um, injections at that time? But I mean, when when you first started out. Yeah, mostly dextrose. I mean, we would inject glucosamine sulfate for a while. There were other things that kind of entered into the picture, but dextrose really stuck. Uh, and uh, and then you know, and then like I said, there was that evolution into PRP, and then PRP to stem cells, and then PRP to to, to exosomes. Or I'm sorry, then stem cells to exosomes. So if if you if you want me to get into that, I can talk about that now. Or yeah, let's get into that timeline. The gener- the, the the evolution of of these therapies. So so. So from PRP, there was a guy, Robert Alexander, who actually was a, a UW doc up in, in Seattle. Uh, Robert Alexander was a, a plastic surgeon, a reconstructive surgeon, and he started 
educating physicians on the use of autologous fat. So essentially do, taking fat uh, from, from you know, the abdomen or the love handle area or the upper buttock. And, uh, and what he realized was that when he was doing reconstruction, uh, often mostly facial type reconstruction after major trauma, he realized that by adding PRP to that, those cells would stay more viable and he would get a better outcome. And so uh, he began teaching, and I, he still does teach, I believe, uh, teaching at a, a, a center in the middle of Montana, um, and this tiny little town called Stevieville, I think it's Stevieville, and I uh, remember I flew out, this was, this was probably close to 12 years ago, so there really was, there, no one in the Pacific Northwest was doing adipose-type stem cell work, and uh, went out and studied with him, and uh, it was pretty crude at that time. Um, uh, we were basically taking out fat. We were basically didn't even rinse it, just mixed it with PRP and injected it back into joints and into tendons. It was very globular. And so now we've known that you know, we, we wash it. We basically, you know, uh, emulsify it. We thin it. Uh, you know, there's this whole new burgeoning field of nanofat for, fa you know, for facial uh, wrinkles and, and uh, aesthetics in general. And uh, so... It was kind of rough on patients. Patients would have these big flares, but six to eight months later, they'd get pretty significant relief of, of conditions that weren't as effectively treated just with PRP. So from, from there, obviously bone marrow is kind of in the background as well. Uh, I, I don't do bone marrow. Uh, bone marrow has more has some mesenchymal stem cells, uh, and mesenchymal stem cells are responsible for generating regenerating tendon, ligament, bone, and cartilage. Uh, but it has it has more hematopoietic cells, and so from a regenerative perspective, it's good. The hematopoietic cells will cause uh, new blood vessel formation into the area. Those hematopoietic cells also influence the immune system in general. But it's really mesenchymal cells that we're more interested in in terms of uh, regeneration of, of musculoskeletal structures. So from from there, essentially. Uh, we started, things kind of evolved and physicians started utilizing, they said, well, we can't put this much fat into a joint. I mean, we want to get more stem cells in there. And so physicians started using collagenase. And so uh, Kristen Camella, her group and, and others uh, began taking fat, incubating it with collagenase to kill or, you know, essentially remove the fat. And then we started collecting stem cells after that and separating them out from the fat. Uh, that is one thing that has now been taken off of, uh, you know, out of the clinical setting, just be by the FDA. They feel that it's too much manipulation and that it's, you know, it's, it's more like a drug. So unfortunately that's something that's come off the table, but you know, what, what, what that forced really was looking into other sources of cells. So people began looking towards perinatal cells, which means cells coming from the umbilical cord, placenta, you know, amniotic regions. And uh, so those are red and, and mesenchymal stem cells. And those cells basically are young. And so, you know, we know that fat tends to, the, the fat mesenchymal stem cells tend to, you know, they, they don't age as quickly as, as you know, your, your bone marrow cells. But mesenchymal cells from perinatal tissues are even that more potent, you know? And so that's what's begun to enter the market now is that we can go uh, to different companies, um, some that are actually publicly traded and tightly regulated by the FDA, and we can get these younger, more vibrant cells. And 
so we, we thought, well, we're injecting these, these mesenchymal stem cells into these areas, and we just always assumed that these cells were differentiating and becoming chondrocytes to regenerate cartilage, or basically tenocytes to regenerate tendon. But what was realized uh, through science is that actually that doesn't really happen to any great degree. Very few of those cells that are injected in actually differentiate. So when we think we're doing stem cell therapy and regenerating these cells with, with actual stem cells, it's actually not those cells that are doing the regenerating. It's those cells basically get into the joint space or into that microenvironment uh, within the connective tissues and they sample the environment. They get a chemical fingerprint of what's going on within that area. And then essentially, then they respond to that. So they will, you know, based on what's going on, they'll secrete what's appropriate for that environment. Then those cells scatter, they leave the area or they die. In that process though, of secreting these substances, they're actually turning on these sleepy stem cells in the area that are old, unhealthy in this kind of bad pro-inflammatory environment, stem cells don't do well. They, they tend to shut down in those environments. They're often there, um, so, but they just have to be turned back on. So these substances that were being secreted by the stem cells were actually called exosomes. And we used to think exosomes were just a way for these stem cells to throw out the garbage. In the 80s, they just they didn't pay any attention to them because they saw these stem cells doing something called exo exocytosis where they essentially were getting these little vesicles or bubbles that were coming off of the cells. They just assumed that it was the cell cleaning itself and that debris was just going to get absorbed by the body. Well, later it was really realized that these actually were, were basically cells that could contain micro RNA, um, uh, mRNA, messenger RNA, and all these other growth factors that were actually signaling other cells to turn on and to basically you know, begin to kind of conduct or orchestrate the healing process um, within that joint complex if they're in joint, injected to in a joint. So exosomes are kind of the new frontier of medicine, uh, mainly just because we can really concentrate those exosomes at very high levels by taking mesenchymal stem cells from perinatal tissues, stressing them, I, I think it's probably in a hypoxic environment, and then basically those that those stem cells, as they're dying, they send out this alarm, right? I'm dying, send the troops, and essentially that is basically triggering uh, those the release of those, those exosomes as the cell dies, which is going to kind of bring all these cells back into the area to fix whatever is going on in the damage. Uh, with the process of getting those exosomes of of of, ex, of creating them is by stressing the stem the stem cells externally in in some sort of process before they're injected. Yeah. So so now what's happening? You don't. So you either, generally speaking, like I for example in my clinic I have mesenchymal stem cells that are cryogenically preserved. Right. They're in liquid nitrogen. The other product I have, which is is frozen, um, is our exosomes. So these companies basically now they just produce exosomes from these stem cells. So it's not something that happens in the office setting necessarily. Um, so and and 
exosomes I think are getting more attention too because they are essentially, you know, they're much higher concentrations than what that, that if, if you inject a million stem cells, for example, you're not going to get that many exosomes out of that. Whereas you can get hundreds of billions of exosomes, uh, you know, from a stressed cluster of mesenchymal stem cells, right? So they'll harvest those, they'll prepare them, and those cells basically go through rigorous testing too. So they're essentially looking at, you know, do they have viruses? Uh, do they have any other, you know, bacteria? And they don't really, you don't really have to worry about bacteria with exosomes because they're super small or they're super small vesicles or substances so that you can filter everything out. You cannot filter out all the viruses and you cannot filter out prions. So there is some concern around that, but for the most part, you're getting it from a, a you know, from a perinatal tissue. Um, and those, those, you know, basically the donors as well as the parents are screened pretty, uh, you know, much in, in much more detail than say, if you're getting a blood transfusion, right? Blood carries a whole lot, you know, it carries much higher risk of, you know, getting infections, getting other things. There's all these stealth organisms that we, you know, we don't really see in the blood with our testing, uh, that you could potentially get. So, um, so I, I view this as a pretty safe therapy. I, I think that's the consensus in the field. Um, there has been concerns about cancer. That's been, you know, that's been addressed. I, the, and the, the consensus is, is that that's not really a concern at this point. Um, there's enough you're getting these cells from a very young, uh, tissue and, 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 and the exosomes basically carry anti-cancer, uh, anti-cancer, uh, messengers more so than, than pro-cancerous messengers. Um, and I think what we're going to see in the future is that exosomes are actually going to become a, a treatment for cancer. And, uh, before we begin talking today, I mentioned to you the exosomes essentially carry these receptors. And so in the future, what we're going to see is, and drug companies are already starting to look into this, is we'll see these exosomes have very specific receptors and they hone in on very specific tissues. So what's happening now in, in the research environment is that they're trying to figure out what those receptors are and how can we direct them to the specific tissue. In addition, these are like little bubbles, right? So they're, they're basically these microvesicles. You can put either into or attach to that either a drug um, or, you know, other, other types of things that might be beneficial to physiology because these exosomes go out, they have a very specific affinity for specific tissue and they essentially hit that tissue and then they basically get absorbed by the cell and then they begin to turn on through that messenger RNA and other growth factors within it, they begin to turn on that cell and begin it, be, it begins to start to kick out you know, basically other, other exosomes and other things to continue that healing process. So when you, when you say that they have very specific, um, uh, things that they like to do, does that mean that you have to tell them by attaching other things to the exosomes what to do? Or, um, I guess I'm having a little, uh, hard time understanding. So they have the receptor sites on these exosomes and we, you can, you can mix them up and add some sort of um, medicine or some sort of additive to the exosomes so that the exosomes are doing a specific function. But when you say that they, that they do specific things, does that mean that like some types of exosomes really like 
to help soft tissue. Some types of exosomes really like to help hard tissue. Yes. So yes, based on their outer surface receptors, um, they're going to hone in on very specific areas, right? So what we know about mesenchymal cells is that they basically, you know, have an affinity for cartilage, tendon, ligament, and bone, right? So the ex exosomes that they're going to be secreting are going to be, you know, have those specific characteristics. They're going to hone in very specifically on those tissues. They hit, they get in, they're going to, you know, hit those cells, essentially trans, those, those, those exosomes essentially transfer that information into the cell and begin to turn that cell on and it begins to, you know, do what it's designed to do, um, whether it's, you know, sec secreting uh, uh, different, different factors that are going to really cause a regeneration of, of tissue. In addition to that, they're going to, you know, signal other cells in the environment to migrate in um, and, and begin to do their thing. So, so one other thing I was going to mention, I, it, it, the receptors, we're just learning about that. I mean, that's, that's and, and trying to get exosomes to hone in on specific tissues. That's something that is, we're just beginning to get, gather some, you know, understanding of that. I think that that's where we're going to see big pharma go, right? Big pharma is going to latch onto that and they're going to say, wow. And there are, they already are, they're doing this research where, they're, they're taking exosomes and they're basically complexing those exosomes with drugs and other factors. So that when they say, let's say you have cancer, right? You, if, if they know what exosomes and those, those receptors within that exosome hone in on that cancer, then they can take that exosome with those receptors, put a drug in it, and it will go directly to that cancer cell. The cancer cell will then absorb that through what's called endocytosis. It'll take that vesicle in and then that drug will be delivered right to that cancer cell. So as opposed to taking, you know, in a drug that's going through your entire body and, and having this influence on all of your healthy cells as well. Wow. So do you inject it right into the cancerous area? Is it a cyst or something and you actually inject it into or around it or what? Well, I don't know. That's that again, that's just research that it's in its infancy, right? So we'll see. Theoretically, no, you wouldn't have to, right? Because it will hone in. You could just put it into the vein or put it, you know, into the muscle and it should then just hone in and basically go to, you know, that tissue that's that it's been programmed to go to, um, essentially. Wow, you're blowing my mind. I'm trying to keep up and <laughs> my simple brain, like how does this all how does this all work? So is does is there are there specific uh, like in like in your clinic because I know that you you treat lots of different people and you have people traveling from all over the world to come see you and work with you are there specific types of injuries or pain that are better treated with these different types because how I think about it is like you know, dextrose is sort of baseline and then PRP is a little bit better and then stem cells are a little bit better than that and exosomes are like the tiniest, most effective, highest volume, most expensive probably sort of forms of treatment. Am I thinking about that the right way or is there like bone, a bone is more receptive with higher uh, quality outcomes with like stem cells over exosomes or whatever? Like how, how does that work? So, yeah, there's so in my clinic, I mean, I, I tend to use the least expensive, most effective therapy for a patient, you know, or, or I balance that. Right. So uh, but but if, if we're kind of taking cost out of the picture, uh, generally speaking, for 
uh, for for tendon and ligament injuries, I'm gonna I'm gonna move more towards PRP. Uh, and uh, if someone can't afford PRP, then you know we're gonna we're gonna go down a dextrose path. I think that PRP is more effective at stabilizing joints, more effective at regenerating tendons, ligaments. Uh, it's gonna take about twice as many injections with dextrose to get to that same place. Um, the if, if you're talking about regenerating a joint that's osteoarthritic, uh, then you're generally speaking, PRP, if you, if you look at the research just with PRP for moderate to severe osteoarthritis, PRP does not fare very well. Um, you know, you, you pretty much need to move into uh, the next generation of biologics, would inc which would include stem cells or, or exosomes. If someone comes in and they have a really, really hot joint, right, they have tremendous amounts of inflammation, then stem cells, if you put stem cells into that joint, stem cells don't do as well in a, in a really high pro-inflammatory environment. They tend to, and when, they, when stem cells get into that environment, they, they, they die fairly quickly. Um, so, and as they die, they can create a little bit of inflammation as well. So kind of the trend, and this is mostly based just on clinical experience at this point is moving for those hot, unhealthy joints to do an exosome treatment. And exosomes tend to, you know, be, have, patients tend to respond a lot faster. Usually we're, we see a downregulation of inflammatory chemicals or cytokines very quickly with exosomes. And uh, so it makes patients comfortable more quickly. And uh, however, the regenerative quality or the regenerative changes in those tissues are still going to take place over six to eight months. I mean, our bodies can only heal so fast. So, people people sometimes get an exosome treatment. And they oh my gosh, I'm I'm all the way better. Well, they'll be better for a while. Sometimes they dip, um, and as as regeneration takes place, then they're going to realize the full benefit. You know, maybe four, six, eight months after that single treatment. Uh, what accounts for what what accounts for the dip? How does that how does that happen? Is it like an, an initial like whoa response and then? normalization and then longer term regeneration? Yes. Yeah. So kind of downregulation of all those inflammatory cytokines and then they kind of pick back up a little bit and, you know, as those exosomes leave the area um, and then we slowly see this trend towards, you know, improvement over time. Uh, exosomes have been shown uh, in, in rat studies to regenerate cartilage, uh, hyaline cartilage. So we know that exosomes have that quality. PRP you know, there is no research at this point, none that I'm aware of, that shows that PRP actually regenerates cartilage. And as I mentioned earlier, dextrose has been shown to regenerate cartilage. So oftentimes what I'll do is I'll get patients up and uh, I'll, I'll basically do either, sometimes I'll, I'll prep the tissue with PRP, kind of get growth factor induction, get some activity in the area. A week or two later, inject stem cells or exosomes, and then basically try to keep that that path going. Sometimes by doing another PRP injection uh, at the tail end, just to kind of keep keep things percolating. Um, my my personal opinion is it's much better to do multiple injections um, and get a, a lot of a lot of stimuli uh, versus one stimulus. I think your body can only do so much with one stimulus. Uh, so. One thing that I've seen is that when people get a, a procedure for osteoarthritis, they'll get a stem cell procedure and they'll they'll come back to me a year or two or sometimes three years later and say, yeah, my pain's coming back. I take a look at the joint. I'm like, yeah, your, your joint looks more degenerated. It does not look regenerated. And so what I've come to realize just after doing this for close to 20 years is that you need to 
do maintenance therapy. So if someone is on that continuum of needing a joint replacement, uh, my approach now is to maybe do a higher end, you know, new generation biologic procedure, exosomes or stem cells, but then to kind of keep that going and uh, every quarter do like a dextrose injection, for example, as you know, as I mentioned, dextrose regenerates cartilage and it, and it works quite well. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think about it from, from the, from the consumer standpoint, you know, if I'm looking at a, at a, at a total knee replacement or if I'm looking at surgery, um, weighing and considering the different options that I have, you know, do I want to go under the knife and totally reconstruct my knee or am I, can I get out ahead of it a little bit and, and try a stem cell therapy understanding that, okay, it's not, it's not going to be, um, it's not going to be better in two months. Um, but over the course of six or 12 months, it starts to feel a little bit better. I mean, I think people have to weigh the options about how they want to, how they want to care for these injuries. And, and, and because the baby boomer generation is the biggest generation that we've seen. There's probably lots of people who are coming into or currently in this phase, like my father, for example, who has had both knees replaced. Um, there's probably a lot of people that are getting into this area where they're like, I, I, I got to do something. My knees turn into dust. What can I do to help it? And for me, and my thought is, is like, why not try the thing that doesn't involve massive traumatic surgery to the, to the, to the bone and to the tendon, uh, rods and pins. And, you know, how do you think of the contrast between regenerative medicine and sort of standard, uh, and I know it's case by case, but how do you think of regenerative medicine versus like standardive Western surgical, um, medicine approaches? Well, I, I, I inject steroids in my practice, mostly for diagnostic purposes. But what we know about steroids, uh, especially you know when it comes to the spine, there is no data to support that they work for chronic pain. Uh, and so in, in my practice, I, I get an acute patient. I had one yesterday. Uh, she was in just e extreme pain. She'd been in, in pain for a long time, uh, and she just wanted some relief. And I said, well, you know, what I do with, with regenerative medicine may not give you relief very quickly. So I took a very small amount of steroid under ultrasound, injected some facets in her low back. And I said, you know, this, this will help get you out of pain. And she got up off the table because there's anesthetic in the injection. Said, yeah, my pain is mostly gone. But your pain is going to come back. And it's going to come back in four to six weeks, generally, based on the amount of steroid that I inject typically. And when it comes back, then we'll go back after this and, and address it with regenerative therapies and actually you know, fix your problem. In conventional medicine, the approach would be, well, we're going to inject you with a steroid. Uh, and then if that works for the for low back pain, right, related to facet, uh, and that's, a, that's another conversation, but primary pain generators are discs and facets and low backs from a conventional perspective. So if we inject that with a steroid, you get relief, then you come back and you do a radiofrequency ablation procedure, RFA or rhizotomy, where you actually burn the nerve that goes to that joint, right? So that process creates some scar tissue, that process you know, kills the nerve. In the process, it actually destabilizes the back because your multifidi muscles get innervation from that nerve, so it weakens the muscles around the joint which is really you know, what we don't wanna do. We wanna strengthen the muscles around that area. And after that area is, that nerve is burned, 
within two, six, you know, maybe eight months later, your pain is going to be back. And so you're going to have to undergo the similar procedure. Uh, every once in a while, every once in a great while, you see a procedure like that work for patients. So I don't think there's any comparison. And, uh, and, and after doing this for 20 years and, you know, injecting steroids and, you know, but with, with the emphasis on regenerative medicine, there, there's just no, there's, there's no comparison. And, and I can tell you if, patient, if a patient has back pain that's related to their facets um, and the post, what we call the posterior elements, 85 to 90% of the time, PRP, even Prolo, um, and, and, you know, if you wanted to, to, a little insurance, you could do stem cells or exosomes into those areas. Uh, those things, you know, are, are, are going to really fix the problem and generally long-term. Um, so when it comes to knee joints, uh, hip joints, you know, osteoarthritic joints in general, we know that injecting steroids and injecting anesthetic at higher concentrations kills your cartilage. So, you know, that from my perspective, I'm very cautious about, Okay, you know you're you're 75 years old. You're, you have your 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 health is not very good. You have a knee that basically has moderate to severe degenerative changes. You know, realistically, I mean, I'm not going to completely rehabilitate this patient's knee. So they may get to that point, and and I have this conversation with them. You might want to consider a knee replacement, right? At this point, because another five years, based on your health, you might be too old to have a surgery. And, you know, so and then at that point, if you're stuck with an unhealthy joint, it makes the last part of your life very uncomfortable. My, my grandmother lived to 103. She needed her knees replaced at 80. She didn't do it. And so the last 10, 15 years of her life, she was basically essentially wheelchair bound because of her knees. And, and uh, so. I'm, I'm very, you know, realistic about rehabilitation, um, regeneration of, of structures. And I think, uh, you know, there's a limit to, to, to regenerative therapies. Um, when I see on the news or when I, I mean, this is, this is, you know, I, I'm paying very close attention to trends and, and these sorts of, um, regenerative therapies. And I see people going in for like full body, stem cell treatments that are where they're just injecting it everywhere you know there's four four doctors you know there's clinics where you can go and you can get you can get a full body stem cell you can get prp on your face you know all of these all of these crazy things like what's your what are your thoughts on what are your thoughts on on doing that is it like more power to you if you can afford it and you want to do it go for it or do you have any concerns that that not may not be <laughs> I don't know, prudent. Uh, you know, if, if, from from my perspective at this point, I, I think that it's a pretty invasive procedure. I mean, you go; most of those patients are going under general anesthesia. Um, we know that, you know, especially if you're older, that general anesthesia is not good for your brain, um, and uh, you know, you lose cognitive function over the age of sixty, typically, uh, with each, you know, t each time you're put under general, uh, and it's pretty invasive. I mean, you're getting a lot of structures injected. What's really cool about exosomes, and this is a gray area of me in medicine at this point, you know, we're, uh, but exosomes have the ability to really turn back the clock in a lot of ways, right? So what's interesting with exosomes is that when you inject exosomes into the body, they go everywhere, right? So there are clinics injecting them intravenously, um, and patients see 
improvement in all aspects of their health. Their tendonitis all over their body goes away. Their mental you know, capacity improves. Uh, their energy improves. And, and doing this like quarterly, you know, a lot of patients really maintain this youthful you know, kind of physiology uh, or phenotype. And uh, so I, I don't think, I think with the newer generation of, of exosomes, I don't think that doing, you know, kind of a, the, the full stem cell makeover um, is is really, uh, I, th I think it's invasive. And I think that we can get there with, with less invasive procedures. Um, and and one thing that I, I can tell you with my, my personal health, uh, I was I went kayaking in the Grand Canyon um, uh, last year. I got off of the Grand Canyon and I had herniated disc in my low back. It wasn't a significant herniation, but I had pretty significant low back pain and, and leg pain. And uh, I struggled with it for quite a while. I actually got a PRP injection uh, from a friend of mine up in Portland. And, uh, you know, slowly kind of improved a little bit, but a couple months went by and I had pretty significant pain. I actually did an IV of exosomes. And within two weeks, my back was 100% recovered. So I, I, didn't, I didn't have any thing injected into that area of my body, right? But those, those exosomes, again, because they're from mesenchymal stem cells and they have that, they're going to kind of hone in on those connective tissues, they go to where they need to, to be. And we know that that happens with stem cells. For example, if we tag stem cells, put them into the body, they tend to go to the areas of dysfunction. Uh, and so they start to show up in your problem areas. So with exosomes, I think, uh, you know, I, I really think that that's, that is the future of anti-aging medicine. Um, I just think that, you know, the FDA, it's hard to say what the FDA is going to do, um, about using them intravenously. Amazing. Wow. Incredible. Did you mention that there was some cognitive uh, improvement as well with the exosomes? Yeah. Is that because they're so small that they pass the blood brain barrier? Exactly. Wow. Yes. Talk, talk more about that. Uh, well, uh, again, um, you know, there, <laughs> who knows, they're, man, they're, Sean, it's, it's <laughs> early. I don't have all the answers, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I can tell you. So, so there was, there were some researchers at Stanford, right? And these, these researchers basically started, they, they took rats and they took a young rat and an old rat and they, basically sewed them together and they're so they're basically they their 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 systems kind of came together if you will right so they they got new blood vessel formation they began to share essentially their physiology and what was seen was that these young rats got older characteristics right their physiology was was you know was not as ideal and the, the basically the the, uh, the 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 old rat began to develop, you know, a, a more, uh, I'm sorry, the, the old rat began to develop a, you know, healthier physiologic perspective or, or what, what we now call their secretome. So as time has moved on, it's, it's, it's been realized that, that, you know, if you actually, let me, let me back up a second. So these guys branched off, they formed a company and this company essentially started taking, and this is done throughout the world now, where you take the, the, the blood of a young person and you infuse it into an older person, right? And that is an anti-aging therapy. And, but what's been realized is that now it's thought that this is really more related to what we call the secretome. Well, the secretome now we have come to realize is really all of the exosomes that are in your body. So you have 
basically a tremendous amount of exosomes. And these exosomes are really are what determine your phenotype or your physiology. And so if you take the exosomes from a very young person, right, in other words, a perinatal cell, uh, an umbilical cell or, or a, a, you know, a placental cell, and you infuse those exosomes into an older person, that's going to change their chemistry. It's going to change their, you know, their, their phenotype, if you will. So I, I, I can't tell you the specific physiology that's occurring within the brain, but I can tell you they're getting into the brain. And, you know, people notice improvements in cognition, in energy, uh, general well-being. Uh, so, and, and if you inject them into your joint, you tend to see these systemic effects too. Probably not as much as if you're injecting them into the vein. So, so why did you opt for the vein and not for, not for a, a localized, you know, more direct injection? In my back? Yeah. Because I couldn't, I can't reach my back. <laughs> <laughs> Good answer. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. And, and, you know, it was mostly just, you know, if I'm going to be doing something on a patient, I, I want to know how it's going to affect me. Yeah. So, um, figure if I'm comfortable doing it on myself, you know, then, then I should, I should be comfortable doing it on a patient or so. Yeah. Right. So, uh, I, the, the question does arise for me and, and if, what are the sources of these exosomes? Where, where are they getting these, um, these prenatal cells? Like what, what sort of, you know, I, I conspiracy theorist a little bit and I worry about like what, what sort of, where are they getting these from and, and what's that process? Right. So, so for example, in, in terms of the, where I get, I'll start with stem cells. Uh, where I get my stem cells from is a company that basically is a top-down company. So they're publicly traded. Uh, they uh, essentially, they do the harvest of the cells. So they meet, they, they meet with the mother, they meet with the father, uh, they do a detailed history. They look back, you know, um, they look at where they're from. You know, they're not getting these cells from the, from New England, for example, because we know there's a lot of Lyme and other, you know, uh, stealth pathogens up, up in that region of the country. Uh, and then they basically, so then they, they screen the parents for all these, uh, you know, all, all the, 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 you know, the viruses, bacteria, et cetera. Um, uh, and then they essentially look at, the tissue once they get it and then they they essentially sample the tissue it goes through rigorous testing for viruses bacteria um, and then that basically that product is then and against the same company managing this then that product is essentially delivered uh, to the lab it's processed further um, and then it, it basically comes to me um, so there's no middle person there's no distributor um, I, I think that uh, and, and the, all the companies that I use, you know, they do, they handle each case that way. Exosomes basically are coming from those mesenchymal stem cells that are going through that same rigorous testing. Uh, and those cells basically are, um, are essentially cryogenically preserved too, right? So, so a lot of the organisms that, you know, let's say for some reason something did get through, if they're cryogenically preserved, most bacteria are going to die in that environment anyway. Having said that, you know, things are filtered to filter out the bacteria when it comes to exosomes. Um, viruses are the only thing that could really get through in an exosome product. 
I am so glad that that was the answer. <laughs> I'm so relieved. I, I, I mean, I had this fear that, that, and I'm sure that it exists somewhere out in the world where there are nefarious, money-grabbing, unethical ways of getting them, getting these mesenchymal cells. Um, the f to hear to hear that there are people talking to the parents, asking them questions about their background, testing them, getting their okay. I mean, that is that is such a relief for me. And and obviously, I'm not surprised that that's the way that that you get your stem cells for treatment of your patients. But um, whew, what a relief! <laughs> yeah, I, I think there there are nefarious activities going on, certainly, and right. uh, and that has happened. And there are, you know, anyone, you or I could say, hey, you know what, let's let's start distributing stem cells. Let's go make some money. And, uh, you know, they're 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 out there and, you know, you can get them from China. You can get them from from other areas. And so, you know, that's why I think it's important to to, you know, if if if. If your listeners are going to get a procedure from someone that they know the source, you know, so they're okay. What company do you use? And, and they do, you know, they do some investigation on their own into that company. That is such a key point, and I really appreciate you mentioning that. That that don't just run out to Jim Bob's stem cell therapy center. Um, do the research. Talk to talk to the practitioner, figure out and understand where these are coming from. If they can't answer the question or provide documentation or, or, or explain to you, don't do it. I mean, don't, don't participate, don't participate in it. Uh, if you can't, if you can't track it. Wow. What a relief. That's great. So that, so one of the other things you want to talk about was peptides, peptides. Let's talk about peptides. Yeah, so so peptides are, are one of those things that you're seeing all over the in internet, right? You're seeing, you know, I'll think growth hormone uh, precursors. Um, you're seeing BP, you know, BPC one five seven, and uh, there has been some research on peptides, and you know, about half, or if not more than half, of the peptides out there probably don't really have uh, what they what they claim to have in them. So uh, peptides, I, I think of, you know, we talked about how. Stem cells get into the microcline, you know, get into the knee or get into, you know, the area when after they're injected and they sample that microenvironment, right? And then they secrete exosomes that are appropriate for that environment. Um, well, I think that kind of began to trigger people to thinking about, okay, so what are what are all these cell signaling molecules? What what are they what are they doing? You know, and uh, so peptides kind of came onto the scene for me more recently. I haven't been using peptides. There's a lot of other people out there that have much more experience in this area than I do. Um, but I was turned on to peptides because I have family members that have uh, Lyme disease and, and co-infections associated with Lyme. And, uh, so I started to do some investigating into specific peptides that modulate the immune system and, uh, uh started implementing those in, in my population, you know, I, I treat pain. And so I get patients that come to me with pain that have Lyme or underlying co-infections or, you know, other stealth pathogens that we really can't identify. And uh, peptides have, have just been uh, a game changer for me in that regard. And uh, so peptides essentially are, uh, are, are basically found within the body. Um, they're, they're, immune, they're basically short chains of amino acids. So they're kind of peptides. If you complex a bunch of peptides or build, put peptides together, you'd, you'd make a protein. So insulin is a peptide. 
and we have hundreds and hundreds of peptides in the body. Um, these peptides basically are found uh, within different tissues of the body. Uh, BPC-157 is something that's gotten, had a lot of uh, attention placed on it just because it's big in uh, injury recovery uh, and uh, that that basically that market tends to, to often, you know, kind of the athletic market drives a lot of these therapies, right? Because people are looking, how can they enhance their performance? How can they recover from injury? Um, and BPC-157 has really been shown to, to do that. And um, BPC-157 comes from the gastric juices. So it's produced by the mucosal, um, by the cells within the, the lining of the stomach. And so what we know about BPC is, is that when you, when you have certain conditions and you inject BPC into someone, it, it's been shown to, again, hone in on tissue. So it will go into the gastrointestinal tract after it's injected and it will heal things like inflammatory bowel disease. Um, it has positive effects on uh, other chronic inflammatory conditions within the gut, ulcers within the gut. But what was realized was that it actually had far-reaching effects. So it actually influenced tendons and ligaments and the recovery. So there haven't been any human studies on BPC um, when it comes to the musculoskeletal system, but there has been a lot of research on rats. And so when they've taken rats and they've you know injured them in different ways, they have essentially seen them heal significantly faster when they inject BPC. Let, let me see. Let me see if I can uh, um, put that in lemon's terms. So the, it's it's actually um, it, it actually the BPC one fifty seven actually originates from the gut, and then when it's in when it's used or taken in by the body, it actually goes to the gut and then affects the body from there. Yes. So it does. So it, it'll have effects on. Actually, there's research going on right now. I believe with Crohn's or ulcerative colitis or both. So, you know, these things are being, they're being researched currently. Um, so yes, it will go there, but it, to other areas of it as well. So it's going to influence, it's going to influence your gut. Like for example, in the case of leaky gut syndrome, right? We know that it improves, you know, it decreases permeability of the gut lining, for example, right? It helps heal your gut, which is going to have far reaching effects, right? Because your gut really is where 70% of your immune system comes from there. There's the gut brain connection. So, you know, you might see some cognitive changes. There was actually some research going on, I believe with BPC and, uh, concussions. And I, I believe there's a study going on right now with Parkinson's as well. Um, so it's actually going to go, the BPC will go throughout your body and it will go in and it will go to your, you know, to your tendons, to your ligaments, and it increases nitric oxide, which dilates blood vessels, right. And allows for better blood flow into those tendons and ligaments, which don't typically get good blood flow. In addition, what we're seeing is that it's inducing specific growth factors that are causing a proliferation of cells called fibroblasts. And those fibroblasts begin to lay down collagen fiber much more rapidly. So people are finding that when they use BPC, they heal faster, part in part because of the, that induction of growth factors in their tendons, ligaments, et cetera, as well as the increased circulation via the, the potentiation of nitric oxide, right, which is going to dilate the blood vessels in the area. So it also works for people that have chronic pain. So it's being used in cases of fibromyalgia and Lyme um, with pretty good success. Um, usually, wow. you know, it takes seven to 10 days for a lot of patients to, to see change, sometimes two or three weeks. But um, in the gut, I have had patients come back and say, you know, my 
my chronic GI pain is better, you know, and it's only been three days. So it, it can have pretty, you know, a, a pretty strong impact pretty quickly, um, which is exciting because those conditions are, are, you know, are rather hard to treat. Um, the other, the other, uh, again, there's, there's lots of peptides for all kinds of things, right? They're gonna, so they're go, peptides can be used to induce and, you know, increase growth hormone production. I don't know if your listeners are into anti-aging, I'm assuming they are, um, but, you know, uh, ipramorelin, um, uh, tesamorelin, so there's these other growth factor precursors um, that can be, you know, found that, that can be used, again, peptides that can be used to induce and increase growth hormone in the body. Um, the way that I get peptides is through a compounding pharmacy, you know, that basically, uh, is producing a, a good solid product. I, I wouldn't recommend people get peptides off the internet. Um, they need to find a physician that, you know, that, that prescribes peptides from a, you know, from a compounding pharmacist. Um, the other, the other, uh, peptide that I've been using has been thymosin alpha one, which is super exciting. Thymosin alpha one, uh, is basically it's produced by your thymus gland and your thymus gland is involved with regulating your immune system. Right. And so what we're seeing in a lot of people that come into me that have kind of this all over widespread body pain, uh, combined with fatigue and other things. And they're like, Oh, I'm here to have my shoulder injected with PRP. And I'm like, well, it sounds like you have a whole lot of other stuff going on. Maybe we should take a step back and look at your general physiology because you're not going to get an, you're not going to get a good outcome with regenerative medicine if you have widespread pain and you have other things going on. You might get a transient effect, but it's not going to hold. It's not going to last. So thymosin alpha one is really responsible for downregulating inflammatory cytokines in our body, um, and uh, and then also at the same time stimulating what are called our natural killer cells. So. For Lyme disease patients or people that have chronic fatigue or fibromyalgia, what we're seeing with these things is just a really a, a downregulating of inflammatory cytokines, upregulation of, of basically natural killer cells, and uh, again, just an overall you know improvement in energy, downregulation of pain, downregulation down of uh, kind of reactivity to our environments as well. Is that injected or taken through an IV? injected just subcutaneously. Um, what we do know is most of these things don't make it past the gut very well. Uh, amino acids uh, that, you know, in short chains, the, the, the gastrointestinal environment generally destroys those pretty quickly. So you can take them orally, but the absorption is, is pretty minimal. Oh, man. Uh, so many cool things. And, and in another five or 10 years, you're, we're going to learn something else and, and be like, okay, now this is the thing this, now this is really right. the future, right? I know. Right. Right. I mean, to think about the fact that exosomes were thought of as just something that, you know, it's something just taking out the trash, right? Yet it's at the root of controlling everything. Yeah. Right. So, um, and, and I think peptides are, are, you know, peptides are kind of the precursors to hormone production, right? So, um, what we now know is, is that, yeah, hormones are important, but peptides are really what drive those pathways in our body. So again, we're getting more and more and more holistic, right, as we go. So maybe we don't do hormone replacement. Right? Maybe we do peptide replacement because we can do pep. We can give peptides to increase testosterone output. We can give peptides to you know change uh, female hormone patterns. And uh, so that's what I love about this field is is that 
as you know, as as we dig deeper and deeper, we're getting more and more holistic, right? And and you know, we talked about the microbiome before, and that, from my perspective, is really the root of everything. And that's you know, that would require another podcast, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, we've 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 tackled the microbiome a couple of times uh, on this episode. Um, but yeah, yeah, I mean, it all it all. And we know so little, right? We just, <laughs> you know, now they're doing, you can send in stool samples, um, spit samples, blood samples, and they can tell you exactly what sort of um, probiotics you should be taking because you lack, you know, you need more lactobacillus A and less whatever, uh, um, bifilococcus. They're such amazing names. Um, well, this has been, this has been a fascinating conversation, Dr. Payson. I, I, I I really wanted to have this conversation to lay it all out because other podcasters and other episodes, uh, other shows have kind of like touched on it. This is what I'm doing. You know, we've really not talked about my foot at all, which uh, I've stayed away from because of a couple of um, um, iTunes reviews that have said, hey, Sean kind of makes this about himself. So I purposefully avoided <laughs> talking about my foot. But I'm going to be doing some peptides. I'm going to be doing some exosomes. And of course, um, people can follow me at Real Sean McCormick on Instagram to to sort of follow my process and my effects. I'll be flying down to Bend um, to work with you some more because because um, this is cool stuff. Um, I know you're not selling a book or there's no promo code or anything for you, uh, Dr. Flattery. But um, if people were interested in learning more about what you do and how you do it, uh, where can people find you? Uh, my websites, uh, so Ben regenerative, uh, medicine.com and, uh, center for integrated med, integrative med.com. Uh, you can just Google me and, and I'll come up. Yeah. So. And uh, of course this is all, all of this will be in the show notes too for this episode. So I like everybody to end with a fill in the blank. Um, it's not purposeful to make people feel um, on the spot, but it does sometimes. Um, and this can be from your general awareness of life and love and medicine and whatever. And feel free to uh, expand on this fill-in-the-blank answer as much as you like. But if you would, fill in the blank. Very simply, uh, everyone would benefit from knowing. I think you're, you touched on love. I think, you know, basically loving, um, is, is at, at the root of, of health. Um, and, uh, um, you're putting me on the spot here. I know. <laughs> uh, I, you know, one of the things that I can tell you that, 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 that I, the way I live my life, I think is with integrity and, and, and really with unconditional love and, uh, doing everything, you know, and I always tell my kids this, when you have this little, you know, this little voice in the background that says, that doesn't feel good. You know, it, it just doesn't feel quite right. Then listen to that voice and, and don't do it. Um, so I feel like the way, you know, I've never been the kind of person that wants to be out there in the public eye. I've always wanted to just do good, good work and be recognized for my work. And that, and that's really it. And, and, and within my practice, I haven't, I, this is the first, pod, first podcast I've ever done. And I've been in practice for 20 years. Right. Um, I, I feel like my success really has come from just always doing, serving my patients, you know, to the best of my ability with integrity and, and never trying to, you know, a lot of, I have colleagues that all they do is stem cell. You know, it's like everyone, the one that walks through the door gets a stem cell procedure. 
everyone that walks through my door is an individual. And so, you know, one person might get dextrose, one person might get, you know, a, a stem cell exosome procedure, you know, combination therapy. Uh, so I think living your life with integrity, living your life with love, um, and, uh, you know, again, loving my condition, my, my patients unconditionally, you know, despite some of their, you know, you know, miss, uh, uh, despite their, their flaws, I guess. So, yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, Dr. Payson Flattery, thank you so much for being today's guest on the Optimal Performance Podcast. Thanks, Sean. Appreciate it.